0: Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 31. <coughs> the conversion of Saul. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if they found any belonging to the way men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But Their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night, and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And we had come to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. And they all were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, where they're seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see y'all today. Um, if you're new and visiting us, I want to welcome you to Risen. I want to welcome you to our church. I'm so glad you're here worshiping with us. Um, I hope you can get to know the people at our church because that's what the church is, right? The church is not just the building. It's not just the sermon. It's not just the music. It's the people. That's what Ecclesia means. It means assembly, congregation. And actually, a lot of the things that we have going on at our church, like you know, um, a turkey bowl or a Christmas party, a lot of that stuff is outreach. You know, um, it's mission minded. Right. So if you've got friends that don't go to church, I know that's how I first got connected to a church is when I came to sort of a neutral space, because sometimes entering a church can be one of the most intimidating things for someone who isn't Christian to do. So invite people who don't know Jesus to a lot of these neutral events and they can come get to know Christians and know that we're not like a cult or something like that. Right. Get to know their name. And um, so that's just to m- remember, everything we do here is very purposeful when it comes to mission, right? It's always mission-minded, um, but I hope you're able to find some uh, quality time to, to spend with family and friends and rest. I love the holidays. Uh, people aren't working as much, so people are more happier, and, uh, you know, um, uh, I like that. <laughs> And so next Sunday, we're going to start the Advent series, right? We're going to take four Sundays to go through the incarnation of Christ. Advent means the coming, the coming of Christ. But today, we're going to uh, take some time to wrap up the book of Acts, at least for this year. We'll pick it up next year. Um, we're in, the, we're in uh, the story of Saul, his conversion, um, part of the early church. Paul was a very influential figure in the early church, <clears throat> One of my favorite movies uh, is the movie Lincoln. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you to see it. It's based off a book uh, that's about 700 pages long, so the movie is probably the better way to go. Uh, But it's a biographical film that takes you through the journey of the 13th Amendment, the abolishment of slavery. And the 13th Amendment failed to pass previously in the House, and so this wasn't going to be an easy achievement. And so when Lincoln was reelected, this was his top legislative priority. But throughout the film, you see just his resolve. He is focused. He's like, I got four years. This is my last term. All I want to accomplish is the 13th Amendment, right? Because he did the Emancipation Proclamation. He's like, if I leave out of office, anyone, any president can reverse that executive order. He's like, we need to pass this in the House. So you see how his advocates, his cabinet, they're determined to get the votes like they're just traveling long distance they're doing every they're even bribing people right <laughs> because some of the politicians are on their way out and he's like hey you're on your way out you're gonna need a job we can give you a job right <laughs> to secure these votes and then you see sort of how this the pressure of this endeavor uh the strain it put on lincoln's personal life you know couldn't sleep so stressed out um you see how it the pressure took on its family life. I mean, I mean, just imagine your life now and the pressures you have now, the pressures of work, and how that puts pressure on you and your family. I mean, I mean Lincoln's pressure was immense. And through it all, as impossible as it must have felt, uh, the 13th Amendment passes by two votes. That's it. You know, it wasn't this uni- grand, sweeping, unanimous. It was, it was by <laughs> the very sort of just closeness of two votes. And then you see how everyone celebrates, and I watch that movie often because it really reminds me that anything worth accomplishing just is never easy. You know, we think it should be easy, right? Um, a thriving marriage, we think that should be easy, but it's hard, right? Uh, a peaceful, united family, we think that should be easy, but it's hard. And as we study Acts. We're learning the origin story of Saul. We're learning the origin story of the church. And we all love these origin stories, don't we? Uh, because it brings us behind the scenes. It humanizes everything. They let us know how things actually happened, you know? The inside scoop. Something like the church, we take for granted how that didn't come about easily. Uh, it took tremendous passion and conviction Uh, tremendous teamwork and sacrifice and and determination and faith as we read the stories of these great men and women as we've seen Stephen right we've seen uh, we've seen today Ananias Barnabas we're going to see how how God used these people of great faith it inspires us to what is possible what is needed what it takes The book of Acts, as we study the origin story of the church, it also reminds us that the journey of a Christian is not a solitude one, all right? If you were born here, if you have lived here in America for a long time, then you are uh, wired to think individualistically, right? Um, You get what you want when you want it, right? That was the motto of Burger uh, Burger King, right? (laughs) You can customize your drink at Starbucks, right? You can make the barista's life miserable, but you get what you want. But as we read the origin story of the church, we are reminded that it's not a solitude journey. It takes a body. It takes a spiritual family. If you're not a Christian, we are glad to have you here. Uh, We hope and pray you become a Christian, you come to know God, and that you find a church, a spiritual family that you can live life with and follow Jesus together. If it's here at Risen, even better. We're blessed by your presence. We're thankful for you, and we're excited for what God will do in you and through you. Now today, uh, we're taking a look at the conversion of one of the most influential figures of history, the Apostle Paul. It is not denied uh, that he was a real, historical, impactful figure of history by secular and religious scholars alike. Uh, Paul, along with his friend Luke, wrote the majority of the New Testament, which is the single most influential text in the world today. Now, Paul's Hebrew name was Saul, as we see today. Uh, That's how he's referred to in our text. His name is changed to Paul in Acts 13. And this was common when people underwent a momentous change in their life. Abram was changed to Abraham. Simon's name was changed to Peter. And today, right, we're going to see how Paul's name was Saul. We're going to take a look at three things. First we're going to take a look at what is conversion. Okay, what is conversion? Second, we're going to take a look at the church's role in conversion. And then lastly, we will take a look at the gospel. So first, what is conversion? Well, very simply, uh, the word conversion means to change. That's it, right, to change. There are a lot of changes we undergo in life, right? New job, new place, new roommates, right, Wife, new wife, right, wife, (laughs) new kid. Didn't really think. That's not even in my notes. This is why I got to stick to my notes. That's that's the danger of improvisation. You know what I'm saying? Um, But Christian conversion is the most profound change we can experience out of all the changes in life. Several years ago, one of my good friends, he became a Christian. And um, I asked him, you know, what's the... Biggest difference, would you say, in how you were as not a Christian and how you are now as a Christian? What's the big difference? Uh, you know, um, because you know, I became a Christian in college, it's been about 20 years, so it's been a long time. I, you know, I wanted someone's fresh thoughts. And he said, you know, he didn't even hesitate, he said, it's about authority. I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? He says, I have to answer to someone now. I just can't do what I want. Jesus is my king, Jesus is my God. And I thought that was, man, so profound, you know? Uh, Because that's what the scripture says all the time. Because before we become a Christian, right, we have our own desires. We have our own beliefs, our own opinions, our own way of doing things. But then we convert. We become a Christian. What's the change? God comes into our life. He becomes our king. He becomes our God. He reprioritizes everything right? We move out of our own kingdom, and now we are brought into God's kingdom, and so at its foundation, becoming a Christian, it changes the structure of authority in your life. That's what it is, you know? It's like, you know, when you get married, right? You no longer have sole authority. It's co-authority, right? If you want to be married, if you want to stay married, it's (laughs) co-authority, You can't have both. You can't have your authority and a unified marriage. Don't work like that. Same thing with being, becoming a Christian, right? The authority structure changes. For example, right, before you became a Christian, you didn't go to church on Sundays. You didn't worship God. You didn't get fed by his word and spirit. You weren't part of a church, part of a fellowship. It was previously a missed blessing, but now it's an advantage for you. Right? You come to church, you make it a priority to commune with God, to get fed by him, to grow in the faith, to fellowship with the body, to witness Christ to people who are looking for hope. It's vital and integral to who you are now, right? It's a priority now. When you become a Christian, another thing that changes is how you deal with conflict. When someone, if, I remember when I was sitting down uh, with someone, uh, Earlier in my ministry, and uh, his marriage wasn't going well. And, um, you know, when your marriage isn't going well, right, your th- your thoughts go to dark places. And he said, You know, Rich, you know, what are my options? You know, and, and you know, he's probably thinking, as a Christian, right? I said, Well, there's no abuse, there's no abandonment, there's no adultery. Um, you can't divorce her. And then he goes, he nods right stays now they have kids they have a family they're doing well he submitted to the authority structure of god so when someone offends you right when you become a christian you move towards as much as possible towards forgiveness and grace right not just because christ has forgiven you but because you also see how goodness and love is the antidote to overcoming evil. That's what the book of Romans says. What does Paul say? He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not easy, not hard, not quick, not simple, but the antidote. And so this is the profound change that happens whenever someone converts to to Christianity, right? Conversion never leaves you the same. It changes the authority structure in your life. And so Saul, before he becomes a Christian, verse 4, says that he is persecuting Jesus. The Greek word for persecute means to attack. That's what it means. Paul is, and Paul is literally attacking Christians. Back in Acts 8, when Stephen was murdered by the mob, Saul was the one who approved it. In Acts 9, today, we see that Saul is getting arrest warrants for the Christians in Damascus. He's in Jerusalem. He's now going to Damascus to hunt down Christians. It's 135 miles. He's traveling a long distance to persecute Christians. But on his way to Damascus, verse 3 says that a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you attacking me? Verse 7 says that the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul was blinded by the light, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, the first thing I want to address here is that if you're a Christian, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, my conversion story isn't like that. Why the difference? For you're not a Christian, you're wondering, man, if this happened to me, I'd definitely be convinced, right? A bright light. Getting knocked off the horse, being blind, receiving sight, I could easily be a Christian with that kind of experience. But to that I say, here is where coming to faith goes back to the authority structure, okay? Here's what I mean. You and I don't get to tell God how we become a Christian, <laughs> okay? Right? Uh, there's a lot of things we don't get to tell God what to do. And one of those things is how He decides to save us, right? We don't get to tell God. Hey, this is the family I want to be born into. Hey, this is how tall I want to be. This is the kind of job I want to have. This is the kind of family I want to have, right? Becoming a Christian really acknowledges the authority structure, that God is the one who has the authority. He gets to determine, right, how you come to faith. And when we've studied the book of Acts, we've seen how Luke gives a lot of cases of conversion, right? Um, In the beginning, we saw how thousands of people came to faith simply through preaching, no bright light. We see how the eunuch last Sunday came became a Christian through a one-on-one Bible study with Philip. We're going to see in Acts 16, a woman named Lydia, she's going to come to faith through a prayer meeting. That's it. And so coming to faith and becoming a Christian comes in many different shapes and sizes. But here's one thing that's common in all of these conversion stories, and that is, the role that the church community plays, okay? You don't become a Christian yourself. You don't grow as a Christian yourself. And this brings us to the second point, the church's role in conversion. Uh, Paul is blind for three days, and God reveals himself to a man named Ananias. He says, go to Judas' house and look for Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias says, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure Paul or Saul has killed Christians? He has arrested people. Like, let's double check this. And then God says, Go. He is a chosen instrument of mine. So God is clearly using Ananias here to initiate Saul's conversion. You see? Because Saul could have just been like, I don't know what happened. That could have been Jesus. That could have been, you know, the food that I, yesterday, I don't know. Maybe I I fell on the ground, hit my head, have a concussion. Who knows? We all like to sort of rationalize things when maybe God is trying to get our attention. right? Oh, that's a coincidence, right? And I love how Ananias goes to Saul. What does he say? What does he call him? Brother. Brother. You don't know me, Saul. I don't know you. We were enemies, but now in Christ, we're brothers. Authority structure flipped. Because to be a Christian is to be reconciled to God and reconciled to other Christians as brothers and sisters. Paul has probably killed some of Ananias' close friends. Maybe he has even arrested them and imprisoned them. But what does Ananias do? What's his authority structure? Not vengeance. Not, I'm not going to share the gospel with him. It's brother. We're brothers now. Amazing. So Saul is baptized, and he begins to proclaim Jesus. And everyone is amazed and say, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. I'm assuming that's spiritual strength and confounded, he confused the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here's the first thing we see throughout the book of Acts, and that is this, the Holy Spirit uses you. The Holy Spirit has used others and sent people to you, right? God is always sending people to each other. He is connecting people to each other. In essence, what God is saying is, You need each other. That's what he's saying. You may not know it. You may not want it. But I'm going to send people to love you. I'm going to send people to pray for you. I'm going to send people to partner with you in life. And I'm going to also send you to encourage others. I'm going to send you to pray for others. I'm going to send you to love others. And this is all going to be for your good. And it's going to be for my glory. So here's what this means for us, church. Um, There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. No such thing, you know? No such thing as a Lone Ranger relationship with Jesus. Doesn't exist. God is always constantly trying to build his church and bring people around you so that you can grow, so that they can grow. And when God's people, as we see here, step out in faith and obedience, we see here that the power and blessing of God begins to propel. That's what happens. It's a ripple effect. We hear about Paul's life in ministry all the time, don't we? I'm sure none of us have ever heard about Ananias. But as he steps out in faith, he doesn't just sacrifice some time and energy No, he's risking his life because Saul can arrest him. And I can only imagine how this impacted Ananias, how this changed him, how this grew his faith. And and this is what God means when he says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You see? Ananias is giving his time to Saul, but I, I can only imagine how this conversion of Saul impacted Ananias. because when I think about my own life and I think about my own ministry as I step out in faith and I serve and love others, I always find myself receiving so much love, you know? I I find myself receiving so much encouragement. I find myself making so many more good friends and, and people that I can count on and depend on in life, people who are praying for us, right? Better better. To give than to receive. You see how that works? The world says that the getter is more blessed than the giver. That's what the world says. Right? Because our world sees things purely as physical and purely individualistic. We're not a community. We're individuals. Spiritual life and spiritual fellowship is not as important as individual comfort. Eternal life is not as important as our life here, which is short and temporary. In this kind of world, you're not trying to give, you're trying to get. So you work, you accumulate, you're not giving love, so you're not receiving love. You don't live in community, you live alone, you die alone. This is the path of the world. But it is not a blessing. This is called solitary confinement, (laughs) which is a means of torture and punishment. But the Bible says life is not just physical, it's not just individualistic, it's spiritual, it's relational, it's communal, it's eternal. The things we do here now have tremendous impact on whether or not they will be brought into eternity. And so Jesus says, invest in the things that rust and moth cannot destroy, people, lives, souls. And so the more you give of yourself, and I find this, when the more I give of myself, the, the richer my relationships and community is, which adds tremendously more friendship to my life, more closeness, more support, more love, and therefore more joy and satisfaction in my life, and therefore more fulfillment, therefore more meaning, significance, more blessed I am. But the only way to do this is to trust God's authority, to give. Not to get. God's word says that you need to live in the love that you have from Jesus. Right? Not in the fear of what you don't have in this world. John says this here in 1 John chapter 4. He says, there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. Right? So when your heart is securely resting in the love of Jesus for you, he loves you. Right? In that love You're not living out of fear. And so you're living in the abundance of Jesus' grace and forgiveness for you, in the abundance of his selflessness and generosity for you, in the abundance of his friendship and support and joy for you. So when we tie ourselves to this love and we step out in faith and we set our feet in this kind of love, it just creates a ripple effect, you know? Just think about it, right? When in your marriage, if, if, you're, if you're just constantly just beating each other over the head with law, what is law? You didn't do this. You didn't do that, right? You're like the police officer I'm pulling you over, okay? <laughs> Not giving you grace. No, 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 right? What does that do? It doesn't create a ripple effect of love. It creates a ripple effect of con- uh, contempt, of disdain, of bitterness. But when you're pouring into that relation of grace out of Jesus' grace for you, that creates a ripple effect of grace. I love you. I love you. This is what Jesus said, this ripple effect. It's beautiful. He says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. In this time. Right? He's saying, look, There is no one who hasn't given that's going to receive in this time what? He says a hundredfold, hundredfold, hundredfold of what? He says houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions. And he says that will transcend in the age to come, right? Uh, And I remember I I really didn't understand what this meant, but um, my professor, as he was teaching us, you know, uh, a class on the gospels, he said, you know, like, him and his family, they poured so much into ministry. And he says, But if I ever needed a place to say, if I ever needed someone to bail me out of a rough patch, I think I have a hundredfold of those people. Right? Blessed is it to give than to than to receive. So after Saul becomes a Christian now, he decides to go to Jerusalem to join the disciples. The disciples are afraid of him, understandably so. Uh, they, dis- they killed their, one of their closest friends, Stephen. They don't believe that he is a true disciple. And then Acts chapter 9, verse 27, verse 28, God uses another person. What does it say? It says, Barnabas took Saul and brought Saul to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord. Who spoke to Saul and how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. What this means is that Barnabas has the gift of encouragement. Some of us have the gift of discouragement. <laughs> Not Barnabas, Encouragement. Barnabas is first mentioned in Acts chapter 5. And we learn two things. First, in Acts 5, we learn that he is a very generous man. He sold a property, and he gives a very large gift to the church. And so Barnabas lived out this generosity that he had from Jesus. But today we see a second thing, that his generosity didn't, didn't just include his wealth, it includes his love, his faith. You see, as you and I learn to give, it transforms us. As we learn to give wealth, we learn to give all. It's all connected. It's all connected. Wealth, forgiveness, grace, love, selflessness, it's all connected in the heart. And what Barnabas is doing here, as he's going to Saul, right, and he's taking a tremendous risk. He's giving up his life in essence, right? He's saying, I could die, could die. And it's not to think that he's naive. He saw Stephen die. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's naive, but he thinks, he thinks it's worth it. And so he, he takes a risk here, and, and to love anyone, to give your love, right? That's what we see here in Barnabas. He's giving love here. To give love is always a risk. It is. You cannot love without taking a risk. If you want to love someone, you're going to have to take risk. If you're wanting to receive love, you're going to have to take risk, right? You have to take a risk that they could let you down, that they might somehow offend you, that somehow you might have to work through some messiness in this relationship, like all loving relationships. That's the risk that Stephen took when he was preaching the gospel out of love. And what did he say to his dying breath he was risking? And he said, Lord, do not hold this Sin against them. That's the risk that Barnabas is taking with Saul. Nobody else wants to take that risk. Not not even the apostles. But Barnabas is the encourager, right? And so he has tremendous faith. He believes that people can change. He believes that people should be trusted again. Barnabas is thinking, God changed me. God could change Saul. Let me go talk to him. For those of you who have the gift of encouragement, right, you have faith, right? You have faith that words, uh, that second chances can change people, that God can redeem. God is the redeemer. He redeems our sins. He's redeemed your sins. So you believe that he can redeem sin, conflict. And you are a gift. You are a gift to the church because God is using you to encourage people in the church you are a gift to me, you are a blessing to me, and you are a blessing to so many other people in the church. The reality is this, though. Part of your ministry is not just loving people so that they can feel welcome. As we see here in Barnabas, part of your ministry is also reconciling strained relationships, right? There's a strained relationship between Saul and and the church, Saul and the apostles. And what is Barnabas doing? He's like, We can work this out, guys. And it's the most difficult kind of strained relationship. Part of your ministry is that. That's part of your calling if you have the gift of encouragement. I know that sometimes it can be hard, but it's a good calling, it's a rewarding calling, it's an obedient and fruitful calling. It was Barnabas. his calling, and that's what Barnabas is doing. It's not easy, but it is necessary. God gives his church, right, sons and daughters of encouragement, and it's vital to the ministry. And so praise God for those of you who are like Barnabas, sons and daughters of encouragement. And just so you know, everyone loves the person with the spiritual gift of encouragement. They love you, right? They're like, Let's call him for the fellowship, CG. <laughs> let's, call, let's call her, right, for the women's mission. We need her there. We need him there, right? Everyone's like, oh, just pray for me, right? Like, I don't know, my back hurts. God doesn't love me. And then the encouragement's like, I'm gonna pray for you. Like, you know, let's do this, guys. Let's all pray, you know? <laughs> like, no, no, it didn't work. <laughs> I already prayed, right? Don't even pray for me, you know? It's like, but the, 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 the encouragers are there, and they're trying to lift people up to believe, to go to God in prayer. That's the first person we all call when something happens, right? That person is saying, it's going to be okay. That's what they say. God loves you. You're not alone. I'm here for you. That's what they say. We're going to get through this together. Come over. Let's hang out. Let's pray. We're going to get through this. And you're like, man, you're pouring love into me. You're pouring faith into me. You are an encouragement. You are a blessing. You are a hope. So church, if you know somebody like that, if you know people like that, would you be able to do something in return? Let's all encourage the encourages this week. You know, because, because it's not easy. You know, the encourages, encouragers get discouraged too. Because it's, it's easy, you know, for, for us to be like, you're just naive. You know, you're just optimistic, but I'm a realist. <laughs> But Barnabas is like, no, I'm a Christian and I believe that God can do things. So I take risks and I love people. I pray for them and I see what God does. And so let's encourage the encouragers. Let's thank them sincerely. Let's thank them lovingly. Let's thank them indebtedly. You know, sometimes they encourage us. We don't even know that's why we're feeling better or walking along our way. Some of us, right, we have the natural proclivity. It's not Barnabas. It's like the other apostles, you know, like oh barnabas hey man you know this person is here and we're like oh saul good luck (laughs) good luck with that one and barnabas is like welcome did you fill out a connection sheet right do you want some coffee let's hang out let me get you connected to a community group and those of us like no not mine go away right oh it's barnabas bringing saul's like hey saul how's it going because their brothers and sisters are getting arrested they're getting killed but because of barnabas barnabas brought peace The church is being built up. They're being edified. The Holy Spirit is present. It's comforting the church. The church is walking in the fear of the Lord now, not in the fear of others. And the church is multiplying. And the rest of the book of Acts is about how God amazingly uses Paul. But it was only possible because of Barnabas. And so I just want to encourage you today that those of you with the gift of encouragement, God is using significantly to reconcile strained relationships. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's amongst your friends. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's in your community group. Maybe it's in the ministries. God is using you so that the gospel can be unleashed in and through the lives of people brings us to the last point the gospel in our passage here we see something happening in the early church that was so radical so powerful so unexplainable how does someone like barnabas look over the sins of saul and bring him into his own fellowship right if there was ever a true enemy of god it was saul right a mass murder of christians But God wants to save Saul. He wants to love Saul. But how could he, after what Saul had done? How could Ananias and Barnabas want to reach out to Saul after what Saul has done to their friends, to their family, to their own church? There could only be one explanation. They understood the gospel. The gospel had just driven down to the foundation. It wasn't just up here, it was deep down here. Because when you are going through strained relational conflict, you you gotta dig deep down to the foundation of the gospel so that you can bring out from that well forgiveness and grace, hope and faith. So let me just end with this here. Right? When Saul was attacking Jesus' people, Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you find that interesting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my children? He, he says, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I have such an intimate union with my people. I have such a relationship of such closeness with my people that whatever is true of them is true of me. Whatever is true of me is true of them. They are in me, I am in them, we are one. That's what Jesus is saying. Their sin is mine. My righteousness is theirs. Their death is mine, my life is theirs. Their guilt is mine, my grace is theirs. Their shame is mine. My approval is theirs. Their suffering is mine. My comfort is theirs, right? Why are you persecuting me? Think about that. So when we are attacking each other, Jesus is saying, why are you attacking me? Profound. And what we see here is because of this union with Christ, this oneness with Christ, this supernatural fellowship with christ it says that the church throughout all judea and galilee and samaria had peace was being built up because of the gospel there was peace what's the opposite of peace it's conflict how does peace come then through grace and forgiveness and love It says, because of the gospel, the church was being built up. What's the opposite of building up? It's tearing down. How do you build one another up? Through grace that prays, grace that encourages, grace that gives hope. Because of the gospel, the church is walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the opposite of wisdom? It's foolishness. It's prayerlessness. right? It's impulsiveness. It's pride. Selfishness. So how do you become wise? By fearing the Lord, by submitting to his word. Wisdom that prays, wisdom that confesses, wisdom that's humble, wisdom that seeks the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does what we cannot do in our church, which Jesus calls his bride, right? Jesus calls you and me his bride. so we got to remember that the church with all its imperfections is nevertheless a product and still a powerful instrument of God's grace we're not perfect look through the 2,000 years of the church some terrible years in our history but Jesus still loved the church calls the church his bride, and jesus never leaves his bride in matthew chapter 16 jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not hold it back the gates of hell are not an offensive weapon right no one picks up a gate and goes on the attack gates are a last line of defense so Jesus is not saying that the church can't be destroyed. What Jesus is saying is you cannot even hold it back. So for 2,000 years, we've suffered more than our share of failures. Nasty fights, misplaced priorities, self-centered conflicts, and lots of sin in the church. But you and I have not been able to kill off the church yet. Actually, the church has grown exponentially all around the world. So Satan can't hold off the church. If our forefathers couldn't mess it up beyond repair, then we're not going to kill it off either. The church is still Jesus' bride. He's still in love with her. He's sanctifying her. And I profoundly believe that the church is the hope of the world. It is not individual Christians that are hope, the hope of the world. It is the assembly of God, the congregation of God, the united people of God. Not because we get it right, but because we are a body with Christ as our head, who without none of what the church is would be and none of what the church does would happen. So maybe you're here today and uh, you're nervous, maybe. Maybe you're cynical. Maybe you've got some pain, some baggage like me. Maybe you're excited. Maybe you're encouraged, like Barnabas. Whatever it is, all of us here have one thing in common, and that is this. We're going to do it together. As friends with the friend of sinners, as brothers and sisters, because now in Christ we are a family. We are a fellowship, the fellowship of the king. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And as we see the story of Saul, we see that it is not just the story of Saul. It is the story of Ananias and Barnabas, faithful sons of encouragement who were so profoundly changed by your gospel that they had faith that you could save and you can change and you can use anyone. You can use a shepherd boy to slay Goliath. You could use a spoiled brat like Joseph to save a country from famine. You can use us to declare your glory to a world that is Broken, lost, and looking for hope, a world that is perishing without love. But we know that this battle is not outside as much as it is inside our hearts. And we are so forgetful. Even though you save us, we also still struggle with sin. We can get selfish we can get discouraged. And you are the ultimate encourager. The Holy Spirit is called the wonderful counselor, the wonderful comforter, the wonderful encourager. And so would you encourage, encourage us all here individually and corporately today for those that um, have been here since the inception of this church plant and for those who have just walked through our doors today, that you would give them encouragement from the gospel of grace and forgiveness that the tomb is empty, that you love them and you are with them always. And we thank you and we ask that you would do this and apply this by the power of your spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.